Well, good to see you all, and can I add my welcome to Stephen's? Great to have you with us uh, this morning. Just before I read uh, the passage, just to um, say that Amos is with us this morning. Amos is taking photographs um, for the church website, so you'll see Amos around um, working away very kindly for us. Um, and afterwards at the end. And listen, if, you don't, if there's a, a picture or a photograph you don't want to be published on the website, no problem, just let us know, and, um, and we'll absolutely uh, respect that. Let, let me pray, and then let me read this next bit of Esther. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks to us that you reveal yourself to us in your word, the Bible, by your spirit. And we pray, please, that as we open our Bibles this morning, that you would again speak to us today, that we would hear your voice, and that you would uh, encourage us and challenge us, uh, that your word would not return to you empty, but achieve the purpose for which you've given it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in Esther chapter 8, and we're going to read verses uh, 3 to 17. Let me just give you a recap um, before I read um, of the story so far. So in the story so far, God's people, um, they are in exile in Persia. They're in grave danger. Uh, a decree, a royal decree has been made uh, for them all to be killed, every single one of them. And that is to happen on the 13th day of the 12th month. God's people are in danger, but we've seen how God has begun to work an amazing rescue. So last week we saw Haman, the great enemy of God's people, the one who masterminded this uh, wicked decree. He was executed, and the tables are clearly turning. But it's not over yet. That decree... Uh, that uh, stands to kill every one of last, last one of God's people, still stands that God's people are still under that death sentence. And so we join Queen Esther in the palace again. Esther chapter 8 from verse 3. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping, she begged him to put an end to the evil plan of him and the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he's pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now, write another decree in the king's name on behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the, with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. 
On the third day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote, all, uh, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province, in the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. Well, I want us to think uh, this morning about joy and about gratitude. Um, because when you meet someone who is authentically joyful, it's amazing, isn't it? We, we see them and we think, gosh, I wish I could have some of your joy. Or when you meet someone who is just genuinely grateful, it's inspiring. What could I do Did I get some of your gratitude? Joy and gratitude are really beautiful qualities. And yet, at the same time, they can be qualities that are very, very hold to hold on to. Uh, so at the beginning of a day, we might set out, determined, today I'm going to be joyful. Today I'm going to be grateful. But then add in a traffic jam, um, add in a, a slow working computer or a, a negative comment from a colleague, and suddenly joy and gratitude seem to slip out of our hands. So how can we grow in joy? How can we grow in gratitude? What is the secret to uh, a life of joy and gratitude? Well, I think Esther chapter 8 gives us an answer. So let's have a look at this story. Uh, remember, we're on the upward curve. The tables are clearly turning. And we're into scene nine. The queen's heart breaks. Uh, now at this point, remember, um, Haman, the great enemy of God's people, uh, the one who devised this whole plan, has, been, has just been executed. And Mordecai, uh, Esther's adopted father, has been exalted and promoted. 
So given that, we might expect to find Esther at this point, um, perhaps with a glass of champagne in her hand, or uh, celebrating with a great big smile on her face, toasting her father's promotion, breathing a great big sigh of relief that her life and her father's life have been spared. Instead, though, we find her with tears streaming down her face on, on, on her knees before the king in anguish. So just have a look at verse 3. We're told Esther again pleaded, pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. Why is she weeping, given what's just happened? Well, it's because even though uh, she is now safe, her people are still in, great, in grave danger. Uh, that edict um, still stands pinned up on every government building in every province, in every city, across the entire empire. That edict that said on the 13th day of the 12th month, all Jews, young and old, women and children, shall be destroyed, killed, and annihilated, and have their goods plundered. God's people are still under the sentence of death. And that thought just breaks Esther's heart. She begs the king to overturn this edict. She says, verse 6, For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Uh, you may or may not know that, that the uh, name Jeremy Marshall, um, he was a prominent uh, Christian man. He lived in England. Um, he died recently. Um, but he, in, his, in his book, he tells the story of um, when the doctors diagnosed him as being terminally ill. He went to, uh, to, to, to tell his elderly mother uh, what, what, what was going on. And understandably, she was absolutely heartbroken. But what she said to him next um, was beautiful. She said to him, oh, I just wish it were me instead. I just wish it were me instead. Well, here, what Esther says, I think, is a bit like that. How can I bear to see this happen to my family, to my people? I cannot bear the thought of it. I wish it were me instead. You see, these are the words of someone whose heart is breaking for her people and her family. Scene 10. The king writes a new decree. Well, the good news is that the king grants Esther's uh, request. He agrees to write a new agreement, a new decree to override the old one. And so in every government building across the empire, next to the old edict, a new edict is pinned up, stating that on the 13th day of the 12th month, that same day, all Jews may gather and protect themselves to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder their property. It's the very mirror opposite of the first edict. And it signifies an amazing reversal. The day when they were all going to be killed 
is now the day when they're all going to be saved. Uh, the date that once made them feel sick to the bones with worry and anxiety. Don't even mention that date, 13th day of the 12th month. I can't even think about it. That same date now puts this amazing spring in their step. 13th day of the 12th month, yes. I can't wait to be finally free from this threat that hangs over us. The king writes a new decree. Scene 11. God's people rejoice and others join them. Now at this point in the story, God's people are in a kind of in-between phase. In one sense, they have been saved. Uh, the king's new edict has been written. It guarantees their salvation. And yet in another sense, they're going to be saved. Uh, because of course, it's not yet the 13th day of the 12th month. Uh, the day of their salvation hasn't yet arrived because the thing that they're going to be saved from, being attacked by their enemies, that hasn't yet happened yet. So they've been saved, and they're going to be saved. And so when they hear the good news of this edict, they are overcome with joy. Verse 16. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. When the first edict uh, was published, we imagine God's people um, all crowding round to read it all across the empire. And we imagined how they would have responded, uh, wailing and weeping reading this edict in utter disbelief. But as they gather around to read this second edict, which overturns the first, the mood is the, is, is, is the polar opposite, isn't it? Someone says, I, I, just, I can't believe it. Reading this edict again and again and again to just make sure that they have read it right, followed by tears of joy, and hugging, and laughter, and celebrating, and feasting, and dancing. Because, of course, these people had been heading for certain destruction. And there was nothing that they could do to stop it. And now they've just heard the good news that they are going to be saved. God's people rejoice. And others join them. I wonder if you noticed that in the, in the reading. So the city of, of Susa, uh, you may remember back to uh, week one. Uh, even back then, the city of Susa, the people of, of that city, were sympathetic towards God's people. So when that first edict went out, um, we're told that the people of the city of Susa uh, were bewildered. What is going on? They're sympathetic towards God's people. And we're told now in verse 15 of this chapter, now that God's people are going to be saved, we're told that the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. In verse 17 too, we read that many people of other nationalities became Jews. In other words, the message had gone out 
there. Mordecai was here to stay. God's people were now heading for this amazing victory. And so the people of Susa, the, these folk from other nationalities, they do the only sensible thing, and they jump ship. They switch sides. They join God's people, and they share in their joy. Well, what does this chapter teach us? What does it teach us about joy? What does it teach us about gratitude? Well, let me just mention three lessons. Firstly, I think this encourages us to dwell on Christ's broken heart for us and to be grateful. To dwell on Christ's broken heart for you Queen Esther, we've seen this already in, the, in our sermon series, Queen Esther is like a shadow of King Jesus or like a signpost which points us forward to him. As I say, we've seen that already when we thought about Esther's bravery in the face of death, very Christ-like. And this morning we see it too as well um, as Esther's heart breaks, weeping for her people, how can I bear to see their destruction? Because, of course, that is the heart of King Jesus too, isn't it? Like Esther, um, King Jesus isn't some reluctant savior. Um, he doesn't look at us in our plight and feel frustration and annoyance. These stupid people, how have they got themselves into such a mess? And how I have to sort it out, fine, I'll do it. no. Like Esther, King Jesus is this deeply compassionate Savior. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? You see it all through Christ's life. You think about Christmas and his, his, his coming. Um, as long as his people, his creatures, uh, were in grave danger, he couldn't stay safe in heaven. He had to come. He was compelled to come. The Father was compelled to send him. How can I bear to see disaster on my fall on my people? You see it as Jesus contemplated the uh, coming destruction of Jerusalem, which happened in AD 70. Uh, what does he do as he comes into the city? He weeps over it. If you, speaking of Jerusalem, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, his heart breaks for its people. How can I bear to see disaster fall on them? We see it ultimately, of course, at the cross as Christ walks to his death, fueled by love and compassion. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? And for us, that is a wonderful thing how wonderful it is that we are cherished like that. How much must he love us to choose, like Esther, but even more so, to choose to take our condemnation on himself, overseeing us, overseeing it fall on us. Do you know, even for those who don't know Jesus personally, there is so much to give thanks for, all of the blessings of this life. But for those of us who do know him, how much more do we have to give thanks for now that we know and have seen Christ's heart for us?
So if you find gratitude um, slipping out of your hand maybe this week, why not take some time? We all do. Uh, why not take some time just to dwell on and contemplate and think about Christ's heart for you? His love and compassion which overflows for us, driving him to the cross instead of us. Second lesson of three. Um, I think this calls on us to remember that our faith has been reversed and therefore to rejoice. Because in some ways, we who believe in Jesus, we are in a very similar position to God's people in Esther chapter 8. And before we trusted in Christ, we were heading for condemnation. And fairly so because of our rebellion against God. We were heading for condemnation. The date of Christ's return, whenever that will be, should have filled us with dread because we were heading for eternal destruction. And yet, because of the young monarch, his compassion, his courage, our fate has been reversed. A new agreement has been written and proclaimed, which guarantees our safety from the coming judgment of God. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament in Romans 8 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Our fate, if we're trusting in Jesus, has been completely reversed. Now we have been saved and we're going to be saved. And that should fill us with joy. You know, you think about these uh, God's people back then in Esther chapter 8. Why are they so glad? Because they really are. Well, because for weeks they'd lived in fear of judgment. And I think there's a lesson for us in that too. That the more that we realize and think about and contemplate the judgment that we were heading for, the greater will be our joy that we're going to be spared it. The more that we realize and think about and contemplate the judgment that we were heading for, the greater our joy that we're going to be spared it. One writer puts it this way, I think very helpfully. Only those who know that they stood at the mouth of hell will fully appreciate the joy of the rescue we have in Christ. So I wonder, do you lack joy? Now, maybe not. But if you do, and we all do at times, could it be that you've forgotten what you've been saved from? It's vital that we remember what, we're going to be, what, we, what, we, what, we're, what we are saved for, eternal relationship with God, for, uh, eternal life with Him. But could it be that you've forgotten what you've been saved from? Because if, if we forget what we've been saved from, our joy will never really get out of first or second gear. Only those who know what, that they stood at the mouth of hell will fully appreciate the joy of the rescue we have in Christ. third and final lesson, I think, from Esther chapter 8. And I guess this is a a, a challenge uh, for any who are not yet 
at trusting in Christ, you're looking into the faith perhaps, um, will you switch sides while there's still time? So you think about the people of Susa, or you think about the people of other nationalities across the empire who joined God's people. Uh, they could see which way the wind was blowing. They could see where history was now heading. They could see that God's people were heading for this amazing victory. And they did the only sensible thing that they could. They jumped ship. They switched sides and, and when they had the chance and shared in their joy. And I suppose just to ask the question, well, what about you? Um, or to put it this way, um, if you're not yet trusting in Christ, are you sure that you are on the right ship, so to speak? Are you sure that you are heading for a great destination? Or as you look over at Christ's ship, heading in the opposite direction, are you sure that that ship is heading nowhere? Or is it just possible that those on Christ's ship are in fact heading for a most wonderful, glorious, joy-filled, safe and peaceful destination? If so, will you jump ship? Will you switch sides? Will you join us? We would love you to do that. For no other reason that we would just love you to be able to join in and share in our joy and celebrate with us, that you might feast with us and sing with us as we await our certain and glorious day of salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and bless you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his extraordinary compassion and love for us. We thank you that he couldn't bear to see judgment fall on us. And so compelled, he went to the cross in our place. We thank you for his heart. We thank you that if we're in Christ, our fate has been reversed. Our judgment has been taken. And we are heading for a wonderful, safe, and peaceful future. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for the wonderful news of the gospel. Help us to keep trusting it. And please, would you grow us in gratitude and joy as we think on what you've done for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.